Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. I'm glad that you're here at church. We get a chance to worship together and be together. You know, I was thinking about, um, you know, today's Halloween, right? So, you know, sort of a funny um, little bit of um, trivia. So it was actually a tradition that originated with an ancient Celtic festival um, where people would oftentimes light bonfires, wear costumes, um, and the thought behind that was they would wear costumes to try to ward off ghosts. So, you know, there's just a little bit of a, a sort of funny thing with that. But about the 8th century, um, Pope Gregory III designated November 1st as a day to actually honor all saints. So that's an interesting piece also that, you know, there's this All Hallows' Eve and then the next day is actually this day when we're recognizing all saints. And I, you know, I thought about that. And I thought, so, so who's a saint in your life that you appreciate? Um, it might be a good time to actually just text them and say, hey, thanks, you know, thanks for uh, being that person for me. Um, but realizing also that God calls us all to be saints. I mean, a saint is somebody who is sort of set apart, somebody who has, you know, made Christ Lord, that kind of thing. And so if you've ever done that, then guess what? you're a saint. Isn't that awesome? Like, you know, that God actually understands that. So um, over time, you know, Halloween um, sort of ended up with activities like trick-or-treating, um, carving pumpkins, festive gatherings, costumes, and of course, lots and lots of treats. And so um, we're in the midst of that today as we're here. So um, Ben already mentioned, you know, that um, we have the uh, PNC report today. Um, coming up, and so glad for that, looking forward to that. But today we're going to spend some time talking a little bit about, about money and about how it is that God actually gives us resources. And so I'm going to ask you to, you know, be patient with me because I'm just back. I'm a little bit jet-lagged still from the trip out to California and back, um, but feeling good um, and wanting to, um, to help us to just sort of be able to go through this parable and understand what it is that God's saying. So a couple of just preliminary pieces on this. Um, so what is a parable? Well, um, you know, one of the definitions of a parable has been that it's a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, I sort of like that, but I also think that actually a parable is more complicated than that. It's actually an extended metaphor, and an extended metaphor is actually a kind of literary device that was used to sort of put two unlike things to compare them to each other. And so in this thinking of it, you know, that it's often was used in, um, in prose and also in poetry as a way of sort of showing a contrast between two different things. And so today, our parable out of Luke 13 is going to actually bring us into that more. Luke 16 is going to bring us into that more and help us to see how it is that Jesus is actually calling us um, to be the people that God's called us to be. So some of the things that we're going to look at and think about is what is it, why has God given us resources? And if God's given us resources, then what are we supposed to do with them? And how do we interact with that? And how do we grow in that as well? So Luke chapter 16, I'm going to actually read through the passage, make a couple of comments as we go through it. Um, it's Luke 16, 1 through 13. It's the parable of the dishonest manager, which I think is interesting. And by the way, <laughs> just so you know, um, the headings in the Bible are not the inspired part, okay? So they're, they're there, but they're just sort of give you a little bit of a guide, but they're not the inspired part, okay? So, so verse one says, 
He also said to the disciples, and this is Jesus talking, he says, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And this idea of wasting actually has the idea of squandering. It's actually the same Greek word that's used for the prodigal son who also squanders his inheritance. Verse 2, And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. He was fired right on the spot. You know, no more job. And the manager said to himself, have you ever had one of those conversations, you know, where you sort of say to yourself, okay, so how do I understand this? Um, He's facing a dilemma. He says, what shall I do? Verse 3. Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do. That was pretty quick, right? All of a sudden, okay, I got clarity. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he comes up with a plan, verse 5. Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50 instead. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the honest, dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Why? Well, because he could not undo what was already done, perhaps. We'll think about that. And then verse 8 says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, verse 9, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Verse 10, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Verse 13, no servant can have two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray together. So God, um, I pray for discerning hearts today that you would um, just help us. Help us as we try to manage and walk through this parable to understand what it is that you would have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're here in this, you know, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, this parable of the shrewd manager. And Jesus said to his disciples, you know, once there was a rich man who had a steward and charges were laid against him. And it's interesting because one of the questions you have to ask is, well, who is Jesus talking to Um, and why? Is he talking to the disciples? Is he talking to Israel? Is he talking to the Pharisees? Uh, who is his real focus in this whole conversation? And, and I think the answer actually is he's talking to all of them. He's talking to us as well. So how do we understand, you know, what it means to be God's people together? And the narrator signals a change of audience from the disciples to us. It, it comes to us. Um, but the Pharisees don't really fade from view much because after all, they were the wealthy of that day. They were the ones who had, this, the, um, 
had the riches of that day. And so the story concerns two figures, this rich man and his steward. And the rich man may have actually been an absentee landowner, um, but the steward is supposed to be the manager of his property. And so the story begins when the charges are brought to the rich man that the steward has been, quote, squandering his property. In the present context, the charge acts, echoes these, again, like I said, um, these actions of the prodigal son. But the parable actually presents a bit of a quandary for us um, in that it's hard to understand how to interpret it. Um, it's a challenge because the steward actually acts and in doing that reduces the, the debt. But how do we understand that? Was he dishonestly falsifying the records so that he might gain favor um, of the debtors? Or was he truly sacrificing his own prospect of short-term gains for long-term benefits? Did he do that so that he would be welcomed later? And the alternatives are sort of these. Um, and I'm going to give us I'm going to give you a lot of leeway today to sort of figure this out. You know, I'm going to give you a lot of, a lot of options to think about how does this story speak to you. And then there will be some really good applications at the end of this. But um, So the first alternative is the steward was cheating the master by reducing the size of the debts. We can see that that's happening, perhaps. Um, the second one is that the steward was acting righteously by excluding the interest that had been figured into the debt. Interest, which is actually prohibited in Deuteronomy 23, verses 19 through 20. Here's what it says. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest, that the Lord may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering in to take possession of. So the steward sort of reduces this debt by the amount of his own commission. That's one view. Um, but there's also a view that he had the right to do it because he could then slash the, the commission that he had. So let me just sort of play with this a little bit. And, and I, um, in overtime, if you want to talk about this, it'd be great because this will be a great opportunity to do it. But, but I want to actually land a little bit on... Um, on what option I think is important. Well, the first option prevails, if it prevails, the steward's actions are illegal and dishonest. I mean, that's just sort of plain and true. Like, everything that the steward does is illegal and dishonest. Um, according to a second option, the steward may have been showing kindness and goodness on behalf of the master to debtors who did not know yet that he had been removed. He was removing the interest so that what had been imposed there um, would be a prohibition of what they called usury, which even though there were such communion or these kinds of deals were common, the, um, the, the, the excuse me, um, the, the manager would have been shrewdly acting. They would praise the master um, when they easily restored the full amount of the debt. But the difficulty with the second alternative is that it's hard to sort of justify 100% interest on oil um, and also on the wheat. So here, here's where I landed, okay? And like I said, um, it'll be an interesting conversation to see where you land, because I think it's open to interpretation. And that's one of the things that's important for us to understand. 
To me, the simplest solution and the one that gives the parable the greatest punch is that you have to take the first alternative. And that is that the steward is dishonest and he continues to be dishonest as he squanders the master's good by arbitrarily slashing amounts that are owed by his debtors. Accordingly, there's no need then to sort of justify um, how the debts are reduced. Um, there's no need to explain why there's 100% interest on the oil um, or even that the, the wheat itself is so expensive. For me, the first alternative is to be preferred because the other two require information and also other assumptions that actually aren't provided in this parable. It's regarding the amount of interest added to the original debt. So to me, on this reading, um, the force of the parable is evident in this, that God is leading us into a conversation about what it means um, to be rich and what it means to give of what we have. Verse 8 says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It's a dishonest steward. It's not just a shrewd manager, but he's praised. And Jesus is building a contrast here so that we can think about our own lives and what we build and base them on. The master calls this steward dishonest. It actually is the word unrighteous, which is interesting. The steward did not just cancel his own commission um, or the exorbitant interest charged by the master, but the master praises the servant for his shrewd action, regardless of whether his actions are honest or whether they're dishonest. Either way, he relies on the honesty and goodness of his master to somehow provide for some kind of future, and the result is that the debtors are now bound by honor to reciprocate the steward's benevolence. Through this parable, Jesus' admonishment is to cast caution aside, to seize the moment of opportunity, and make provisions for our future before God. That's one of the applications of this. The kingdom of God is at hand, and Jesus says, because of that, disciples are not to make friends of unrighteous mammon. You know, there's a lot of um, sort of stories of, of tricksters that are common in Jewish folklore. And there's a great story that I want to share with you this morning that, um, you know, actually you think about it and you can think about all the tricksters, right, that sort of came down in the Old Testament. I mean, Jacob was a trickster patriarch who deceived his father. He cheated his brother and then made off with most of his father-in-law's flock. Um, and so in the rabbinic literature... There's all kinds of stories that are told. Here's one. Uh, a man, once caught stealing, was ordered by the king to be hanged. On the way to the gallows, he said to the governor, I know a wonderful secret, and it would be a pity to allow it to die with me. I would like to disclose it to the king. The secret was this. He would put a seed of a pomegranate in the ground and by the secret taught to him by his father, he would make it grow and bear fruit overnight. The thief was brought before the king the next day, and the king, accompanied by the higher officers of state, came to the place where the thief was waiting for them. And there the thief dug a hole and said, this seed must only be put in the ground by a man who has never stolen or taken anything which did not belong to him. And then he said this, being a thief, 
I cannot do it. So he turned to the visor, who, frightened, said that in his younger days, um, he had retained something which did not belong to him. And then the treasurer said that in dealing with such large sums, he might have entered too much or too little that the king owned, and that he had kept a necklace which did not belong to him. And the thief said this, You are almighty and powerful and want nothing, and yet you cannot plant the seed. While I have stolen a little because I was starving, am to be hanged. The king was pleased, and so he actually pardoned him. He let him go because of that. In this story, as in the parable of the dishonest steward, the central character is accused of stealing and by shrewd actions, and I would actually add um, brutal honesty, right? Wins a pardon and commendation from the master. When people hear this passage, they often wonder, is the Bible against making money out of money? Or was Jesus indeed just telling us some kind of financial practices that would get us later out of the difficulties we, were made, made, we, are, we are facing. And the problem is actually made worse when some of the usual translations of verse 9 say, or seem to hint that somehow you can, you know, buy your way into heaven. That's a difficult thing, because heaven is not for purchase. Going back to verse 8, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Verse 9 says, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the internal dwellings. So how do we sort this all out? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to understand how this story actually works. You see, Jews were forbidden to lend money with interest, but many people got around that by lending money in kind with oil and wheat often being easy commodities to use for this purpose. It's likely that the steward deducts from the bill was the interest of the master had been charging, with a higher rate for oil than for wheat. If you reduce the bill in each case to the principal, the simple amount that has been lent, the debtors would be delighted, but the master brings charges against the steward without owning up to his own shady business practices. Thus, when the master heard about it, and I think the verse, or the term master, um, in verse 9 is certainly the master of the story and not Jesus, he could only admire the man's, the man's clever approach. But the second thing that we have to realize, as the whole setting in Luke helps us to do, what the parable is really about. Again, this is a parable. It's not necessarily a moral teaching about money or how or how not to use it. It's important for us to remember that. N.T. Wright points this out in his commentary. He says, you know, if we're faced with the first century Jewish story we've never seen before about a master and a steward, we should know what it is most likely about. So here's, here's sort of the typical way that this would be interpreted. The master is God. The steward is Israel. Israel is supposed to be God's property manager, the light of God's world, responsible to God and set over his possessions. But Israel, as we've seen so much in this gospel, has failed in the task 
and is under the threat of imminent dismissal. Jesus, in the parable, indicates that Israel is facing a major crisis. The answer is to throw caution to the wind, to forget the extra bits and pieces of the law that the Pharisees have heaped up, and to make friends while they can. That's what the children of this world would do. And the children of light, that is the Israelites, they ought to do that as well, learning from the cunning people of the world how to cope in the crisis that will soon be coming upon their generation. So instead of hoarding money and land, Jesus' advice was to use it as far as one could to make friends. Actually, it's a little more than that in, anyway. Um, he says there's a crisis that's coming, which alternative homes, homes that would not be eternal, habitations would be needed. And the parable appears to be directed very specifically to the situation of Jesus' own day and specifically to Israel's unfaithfulness. So, all right. Thank you for putting up with all that. Now, we're going to get into sort of the rock-bottom part of this. So, you know, as the church continues to go through turbulent times, it frequently needs to reassess what matters and what doesn't. The 20th century saw the so-called mainline churches um, in many parts of the world. These traditional denominations were in decline, with newer churches in underdeveloped nations growing and spreading. So the question becomes this. What's the traditional church to do when faced with their own limited lifespan? Perhaps they need to learn to think unconventionally, to be prepared to make new friends across traditional barriers, to throw caution to the wind and discover again in true fellowship of the gospel a home that will last, a home that will last. Wealth is oftentimes a mixed blessing. Think about all the stories that you've heard about people who have won the lottery and yet in a few years they're bankrupt again, right? You know, they, they get this big windfall and then all of a sudden, boom. And the message is this, money is not the answer to my problems. In fact, about half of the um, stories in the newspaper seem to be about money in one way or another, the glamour and glitz it seems to provide, um, the shock and horror when it runs out, the never-ending scandals about people getting it, embezzling it, losing it, and then getting it again, right? I mean, that's what we hear in the news all the time. The lines between legitimate business and sharp practice are notoriously blurred oftentimes. And the key to all this is in the opening verses, that money is not a possession, rather it's a trust. It's a trust. God entrusts property and finances to people and expects it to be used to his glory and the welfare of his children, not for private glory or for fame. The remainder of this passage is that money points beyond itself to the true riches that await us in the life to come. But the problem is, a lot of times we get those things backwards. We think of possessions as being a sign of God's favor in our life. But Jesus takes the opposite view of that. 
With a good deal of prophetic writings on his side, he points out Israel to care for the poor and the needy. We are called to care. In addition, those who can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much, just as those who are dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. So who can you trust with significant things of real value if they can't handle worldly wealth? The question is, are our resources put to a selfish or a generous use? If one cannot manage what is given as part of stewardship, who will give us what is truly our own? Jesus drives for character in his disciples that reflects God's integrity, God's generosity, God's grace. But underlying all this is a fundamental choice of allegiance. Who will you serve? And the judgment comes down to this. No one can serve two masters. The moment will come when the servant must choose which one gets the service. There will be a moment of decision where we have to decide which side are we on. If the resources we receive from God are to be used in service to him and to others, then to serve God is to give our resources to meet the needs of those who are around us. You know, I couldn't help in thinking about this to think about our care team here at the church, which is actually a group of people that meet to, um, to enable and to make sure that people have what they need. And if that's something that would be helpful to you, we'd love to connect you with them. But, but there's this sense that, you know, God has given us resources because God understands who we are and what we need. And then there's also a piece of accountability uh, because there will be a day when God will evaluate how we have used our resources. So thinking about this, reflecting on it, some of the questions that I think are important for us is what do we focus or build our lives upon? What is the thing that really captivates us? What is the bedrock of life and our foundation? Are the material resources that we possess, um, are we see them as a way to actually help people connect with God? Do we remember that we're stewards? Ephesians 4.28 says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see, resources are not meant to be hoarded, but they're meant to be planted for a harvest of generosity that serves others and it meets real needs. The stewardship of money is not an end, but a means, where others can see acts of caring from those who say and show that God does care. Since greed and selfishness have a deep home in the human heart, the message of this text not only bridges the context, it actually explodes them. It actually erodes them. It actually blows them up. So going on now, verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Verse 11. And then if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? Verse 12. 
And if you have been, not been faithful in what, that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And then finally, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will do, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So verse 13 sort of rounds it off. Um, the pursuit of wealth can actually cause us to ignore God, to undervalue family, to walk over people, to use them, act unethically, engage in another sort of host of other destructive actions. Which is why Ephesians actually talks about greed as a kind of idolatry. It's putting the wrong thing in the wrong place. And Jesus is clear that a person must know who he or she will serve, for even when a choice has to be made, a person cannot serve both God and money. And everything here in this passage calls us to choose God first. Calls us to choose God first. Our resources are kind of a litmus test of our spiritual stewardship. And so as they're poured out, um, we have the opportunity to say to a needy world, we care for you, and so does our God. So a couple of applications, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna go through a few of these, but the first application for this is it's, it's all about trust, right? It's all about what God's given to us and, and how we use the resources God's given us. That, that money itself is not a possession, um, but it's a trust. It's um, a property that God has given to us. It's to be used to God's glory. It's to be used to the welfare of God's children. It's not just for private glory or grammar. Um, and remember again that it always points beyond itself, that money always points beyond itself to the truest riches that await us in the life to come. These are the true wealth that will belong to us rather than us belonging to them. You know, the Bible contains 500 verses on prayer and faith, but it contains well over 2,000 verses on money. And approximately 40% of Jesus' parables deal with money. It's obvious that God has plenty to say about wealth and giving. So here's just a couple other additional pieces for us to think about. Hebrews 13.5 says this, Keep your lives free of the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Matthew 6.21 says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too, the writer says, is meaningless. It's a kind of endless treadmill, right? Where, you know, we just keep sort of plodding along, but, but we're heading in the wrong direction. Romans 13, 8 says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. 
Matthew 19, 21, um, Jesus says, Go and sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me, the call to discipleship. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's pretty convicting, isn't it? That, you know, the question is, when it comes down to where our allegiance lies, does our allegiance lie with who God has called us to be, or is it simply that we want to make sure that we have a good bank account and a lot of money in it? I'm going to call the band up at this time to come and, um, and to join in with this. So we're called to be wise stewards of all that God has entrusted to us. And here's the point. God actually cares about how we use our resources. It shows that we trust God to provide and to care for us. Jesus calls us to serve each other and be generous because God is generous. And the stewardship of money is not an ends, but a means. So as we care, people can see God's care through us, that it's demonstrated and visible. If we trust wealth more than God, we start to think it's all up to us, and we miss out on God's actual love and care and provision in our lives. God actually is with us and takes care of us um, every day of our lives, providing the things that we need. Jesus talked about how God feeds the birds of the air and that God provides, and that's the message. God is the one who provides. It's not all up to us. God provides. And everything in this passage calls us to choose God and to choose God alone. We demonstrate God's love by the care um, and care by showing our love for God and others in the way that we use our resources. So, a reflective question. Um, what holds first place in your life? Is it God and Jesus Christ or is it money itself? Let's pray. So God, by so many standards, um, we are rich. We are rich. And so we pray, God, that you would um, meet us in this and remind us again of who you've made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our last song? It's time for the dead. 
So um, just a reminder that today we are having a, um, you know, we're having a short meeting for or about a half hour or so with the pastor nominating committee. And so if you're not able to be here in person, we'd invite you to come back in in person. Um, if you're not able to be here, it will be actually posted um, so that people can see it tomorrow as well. Or if you're outside in the parking lot, you should be able to watch it out there. So anyway, um, today as we're here, just a reminder that, um, that God's grace and goodness is always new to us, that, um, that God gives us things, um, but in a way so that we can use them to actually benefit others. And so today as you go from this place, um, may the peace of God, that which surpasses all understanding, may it guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus this day and all your days. Amen. Thanks for being here today.